Bible reading this morning is taken from Malachi 3 and reading from verses 1 to 10. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I'll come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. wake you up. <laughs> Thanks, Sandra. Hey, Jim. For those who don't know, this is Jim. Jim's uh, been preaching with us over the last couple of years. It's been great to get to know you. Can I just pray for you? Yes, please. Father, Lord, I just thank you for my brother in Christ, Jim. Lord, I thank you for his heart for you. I thank you for your love towards him. Just fill him with your, your spirit to overflowing. Let his words be your words, Lord. And just keep our eyes and ears attentive to what it is you want to say to us this morning as a church. Your powerful name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jim. Good morning. It's good to be with you and welcome those who are watching over in the VIP lounge next door. And welcome to those who are watching in their slippers at home. You're all so welcome. It's really great to be here. I bring greetings from the Southern Counties Baptist Association. And you may or may not realize that you're part of a network of about 155 churches chaplains, pioneers, and ministries across the South Coast, and you're connected together. And so I bring you greetings from your sisters and brothers across the region. 
Since September, I've joined the regional team. So uh, part-time, I'm one of the regional ministers, particularly looking at mission development. So I appreciate your prayers for that. And we as a team pray for you as a church in your ministry, particularly as uh, you're seeking to discern God's will for your ministry team going forward. Uh, The rest of my time, I do various bits and pieces, uh, one of which is that I take a lot of funerals. In fact, I take about 100 funerals a year, and I absolutely love it. It sounds strange to say, but it's just such a privilege. Uh, When I left my last church over in Cosham, uh, someone had a word that I I wouldn't be an evangelist, but I'd be a pastor to non-Christians. And that's what it is with the funerals. I absolutely love it. And a little while ago, I took a funeral, and the son of the man who died asked if he could say a few words. And he got up at the lectern in the crematorium, and he said this. He said, I've now got a letter that our father has written to each of us as his children. And he he hadn't opened it. And he literally opened the envelope there in the middle of the crematorium and read out this letter that their dad had written, a personal message to each of the children. And as you can imagine, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And it turns out that the dad got the idea from a movie. And the movie is about a lady whose husband died and her husband arranged for a letter to be sent to her each week and telling her that he's so proud of her and to keep living life to the full. And at the end of each letter, it was the same four words. Anyone know what it is? P.S. I love you. You got it. You've been watching too many chick flicks. Well, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's Father God's final message in the Hebrew Scriptures to his people. And it's a tough message in part, but underneath it all, he says, P.S. I love you. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord Almighty. So whatever situation you find yourselves in today, whatever prayers seem unanswered, whatever you're arguing with God about at the moment, would you just sense him saying to you today, P.S. I love you. By the way, before we dive into the passage, uh, a little connection I made recently is that I played table tennis in in the Portsmouth League. Not very well. We were quite low down. But my teammate in the table tennis club is someone that many of you know. He's called Tim Clarkson. And so just a little reminder that God doesn't give up on on us. And it's been great to get to know him and just connect. And we suddenly made this waypoint connection this week. So a little bit of background. Keep Bibles open if you've got them. Malachi chapter 3. We're in about 400 to 400. 50 BC. So about 100 years after God's people had come back from exile, from being slaves in Babylon. They'd been under pagan occupation and pagan laws and pagan rules and values for 70 years. But now they're back in Jerusalem. They've got a new temple And everyone's full of hope for the future. They're going to be a nation again. The long promise of Messiah was going to come to pass. They're going to be prosperous. There was going to be dancing in the streets, and everyone's going to be happy ever after. But a hundred years on, and things weren't quite going to plan. You see, it turns out that it's easier to take the people out of slavery than to take the slavery out of the people. 
And before long, they started to go back to their old ways of idol worship and marrying pagan women. And worst of all, the outward observance of religion without the heart. In other words, religion without relationship. Worship without heart. When I was at Bible college, we were taught to summarize any passage into one sentence. It's a good discipline to try to do it. And Jesus does it, doesn't he? Matthew 22, he says, the whole law and prophets are summarized in this. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Malachi's message is basically the same. So here's my attempt to summarize it in one sentence. Malachi's message is this, that it's impossible to separate our vertical relationship with God God from our horizontal relationship with others. That violation of one will dramatically impact the other. It's impossible to separate our vertical relationship with God from our horizontal relationship with others. That violation of one will dramatically impact the other. You see, Israel's role in the world was to reflect their God. God's character. The nations around were meant to look at the Israelites and be able to work out what their God was like. Verse 12, all nations will call you blessed because of me. And so to distill it even further would be to say that the part of his character that God most wanted them to reflect was his generosity. A generous people reflected a generous God. And generosity is demonstrated most strikingly in the areas of money, sex, and power. Where we are in these three areas is a good indication, according to Malachi, of where we are in our relationship with God. Sex is covered in the previous chapter. Have a look when you get home. The whole area of divorce and adultery. And that famous verse, God hates divorce. But it wasn't that God hates divorce and therefore, if you are divorced, God hates you. And God is only interested in nice, neat families with, you know, a nuclear family with a Labrador in the corner and and no issues. And, And God's not interested in broken people. In fact, the opposite is true. Malachi specifically refers to divorce as an issue of injustice against women. He talks about men who who violently cast their wives aside in order to chase after pagan girls, which would have left the wife and children in that culture destitute, with no property, no status. That's why in Deuteronomy 24, he says to the men, now listen, sunshine, you stay faithful to the wife of your youth. But then he says, if you do divorce her, you better give her a certificate. Because a certificate would have ensured that the woman's rights would be maintained. That she could legally remarry rather than being left in poverty as was happening in Malachi's day. So then as we come into chapter 3, this is just to give you a little bit of background. As we come into chapter 3, he takes this theme of protecting the vulnerable and expands it to include not just the home but society as a whole. God's people were to reflect his character, not only in the use of sex, but also in the use of power. And he gives some examples. We just heard them read. Verse 5. The Lord says, I will be quick to judge. So who's he going to judge? Sorcerers. 
Everyone happy for God to judge witches? Okay, so far? Adulterous. Someone who sleeps with someone who's not their husband or wife. Not good. Perjurous. Those who lie under oath. We're pretty hot on that. But the list doesn't end there, does it? It doesn't end where we'd be quite comfortable for it to end. I will also be quick to judge those who don't give workers a fair wage. Those who don't look out for the widows or the fatherless. Those who deprive refugees of fair hearing. This is the same list as witchcraft. In other words, God is saying to his people, you are answerable to me for how you treat the most powerless, the most vulnerable, those at the bottom of the social spectrum. There's this little phrase throughout the Old Testament that's repeated again and again. You find it in Exodus 13, Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 15, where God reminds his people, he says, remember, remember that you yourselves were once slaves in Egypt. Remember that. You had nothing. No status, no money, no power. So remember that in your dealings with those who have nothing. This is the generosity of God, who writes into the law of Moses, Leviticus 19, do not mistreat the alien in your midst. That's a good law, but it doesn't end there. Treat them as part of your own family. That's pretty strong, but it doesn't end there. Leviticus 19, 34, love them as you love yourself. Love them. Immigrants. It's pretty strong. And actually, we have seen examples of that, haven't we? In those who've welcomed Ukrainian families into their home. It's part of their family. Friends of ours have done it. Directly, literally following God's word in this way. So how else do we apply this? As as we seek, as God's people today, to reflect the generosity of of a generous God to the world. Well, let's take the other examples. What about workers' rights? Are you involved in employing people? Then you have a direct responsibility under God to make sure that workers are treated well. But I wonder if we could also have an indirect influence on the oppression of workers. Do you know where your pension is invested? Do you take the time to look into it? Do you know what your bank does with your money? Do you know the story behind the clothes that we wear and the the coffee that we drink? Could it be that through ignorance we are contributing to the oppression of workers? I met someone last week and he had a fire in his belly. I thought he was going to talk about his church in Oxford. And no, the whole thing he talked about was that God had put this passion in his heart for 2,000 Filipinos who were working at the Samsung plant in uh, Budapest and how they're not being treated well. And he's just desperate. He wants to take on Samsung. I mean, talk about David and Goliath. But God's put this passion in his heart. That's what being Christian is about. Dare I say, more than singing songs on a Sunday morning, being his hands and feet, being his voice in the world. For us too, people ought to be able to look at our lives and and work out what sort of God we serve. What's most important to the God that we worship. Secondly, widows. 
According to Public Health England, we have in this country, especially since COVID, a loneliness epidemic. Do you have a neighbor who's on their own? Would it be possible to pop in and, and sit with them once a week or often do their shopping? Simple ways to directly live out God's word in our daily life. Third example, refugees. Could you, could you accompany someone to their asylum healing, hear, hearing and speak up for them and their character? I've done it twice. And it's amazing that the, the difference that it makes when someone has a, a British citizen standing for them is striking in those hearings where there's just a queue of people going through this terrible process. Malachi's call for justice to the refugees is just as relevant today. These are prophetic acts. But the biggest way that Christians contribute to the injustices of the world is by choosing not to see them. Is by choosing not to see them. I'm just as guilty, by the way. I'm a hypocrite saying all this. I've been known to watch Comet Relief the next day on catch-up so I can fast-forward the, the, the adverts for, for appeals for the starving children just to watch the comedy. I'm a hypocrite. We choose not to see it. Plenty of Christians, plenty of white Christians in apartheid South Africa, plenty of Christians in Nazi Germany chose not to see it. So Malachi proposes this most radical theology that how we treat the lowest in society is a litmus test of our relationship with God. Now you cannot separate the vertical from the horizontal. That violation of one will dramatically impact the other. How does Jesus distinguish between the, the sheep, his true followers, and the, the goats, those who merely say, Lord, Lord, but never knew him? In that gut-wrenching passage in Matthew 25, where he says to the sheep on his right, come, you who are favored by my father and receive your inheritance. For I was naked and you clothed me, I was hungry and you fed me, I was in prison and you visited. And he turns to the goats on his left and says, be gone from me, you who are cursed by my father. For I was naked and you didn't clothe me, I was hungry and you didn't feed. I was in prison, you never came. And the righteous will say, Lord, come on, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? When were you in prison, Lord? And, and in that terrible verse, he says, that which you did for the least, for the lowest, you actually did for me. Last time I was here, I told you that three times a year I go to visit the Isle of Wight prison and sex offenders wing and to visit a friend of mine who, whose family had long since disowned him. He came to faith hand himself in. Terrible place. And every time I went, it was, it was a load of money to get across on the Isle of Wight ferry and a hassle. Took the whole day as a cumbersome system. I used to think, oh, I'm so, so busy to fit this in. And every time I left, like a broken record around my head was those words of Jesus. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited. That which you did for the lowest, least, you actually did for me. I told you that story last time. Soon after I was here, my friend died, right there in prison. And do you know, if I'm honest, so much of what I spend my time doing, I feel like won't be remembered in a year from now. But going to visit my friend 
felt like it would be remembered in, in heaven. Guys, Christianity is not easy. I'm sorry if you were sold a lie when you joined. There'll be a wonderful time of you know, flag waving and, and, and great coffee and all of that, but Christianity is not easy. You can't unknow what you know now. You're involved now. Of course it's easier to live in ignorance. Of course it's easy to sit back and you know, watch daytime TV and play golf and, and then die. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, it sounds easy to me. I'm sorry, I know, I know I haven't played golf with some of you. Maybe, maybe the courses around here aren't that easy. We're involved now. We've signed on the dotted line now. And if we've committed to follow Christ, then we have an obligation in his name to, to stand up for what is not of his kingdom. The oppressed and the voiceless. And it's exhausting and it's frustrating and, and it's thankless. I need to preach to myself. I don't do it. But I think it would be something to get out of bed in the morning for. And it wouldn't be boring. And I think it would make God smile. Final point, final part of the puzzle. That Malachi, it seems like a change of gear when he suddenly brings in this extra part of the puzzle. He says that the, the easiest and also the hardest way to, to live this out is to start with our wallets. God's people were called to reflect his character in the areas of sex, in the home, power, in society, and finally, money. Verse 8, will a mere man rob God? Yet you rob me. How have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Do you know the basics of how tithing worked in the Old Testament? Yeah? Well, I'll tell you how I think it worked, and you tell me if it matches, okay? So every year, you would save up 10% of everything you got in, and you'd put it aside. And then at the end of the year, you'd pack up what you saved, and you'd go to the temple, and you'd have a massive party with God, like a giant bring and share supper. Anyone, hands up, we were taught that tithing's about having a party. It's right there, Deuteronomy 14. You look it up when you get home. And then in the third year, you would, save, you would take what you'd saved and you'd give it to the Levites. That's the priests. Yeah, Jim, good verse. Put that on, you know, make sure you can send that to people. <laughs> and guess who else? The widows, the fatherless, and the refugees. You still don't believe me, do you, that tithing's about having a party? Okay, let me read you it. Deuteronomy 14, 22. Okay, I'm just reading God's word here. Be sure to set aside a tenth of what your fields produce each year, and then eat the tithe. Your grain, your new wine, your olive oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks, in the presence of the Lord at the temple, and rejoice. But do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So at the end of every third year, bring all the tithes of that year's produce so that the Levites, as well as the foreigners living among you, the widows and the fatherless, may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you do. You see the continuation of the theme, using your money to make sure that the most vulnerable are looked after. The problem by Malachi's day is that people were taking the, the best produce, the, the prize lambs, and selling them at market because you get more money for them and just bringing the runt of the litter to the temple. But that wasn't an appropriate response to such a generous God, was it? 
Now, of course, we now know that he was preparing them for the perfect lamb, without spot and blemish, Jesus, the lamb of God. We'll celebrate that in communion in a moment. But in their context, the point was that God gets the best, the prime cuts, the first fruits. It was a sign of faith and trust. If you truly believe that all, God, all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above, then you put that faith to the test by giving God the best. And that principle still remains. God gets the first bit of what comes in. It's not, you know, all our standing orders go out and then if there's a, if there's a tenner left, then it goes, you know, the principle is God gets the first bit. And then by the time you come to the New Testament, Paul takes it even further. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he tells the Corinthians about the faith that he's seen in Macedonia. He says, even though they were poor, they gave as much as they were able. They even gave beyond their ability. In fact, they pleaded with us for the privilege of giving to the saints. Imagine, Jim, someone rings up Monday morning and pleads with you, please can I give a bit more to the church? You say, no, no, you've given enough this month. Please, let me give some more to the church. Paul goes on. But, and this is important, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. Not, in, not reluctantly or in response to pressure, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And his final challenge to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in love, I want you to excel in giving. You see, the problem with tithing as a sort of legalistic thing, especially if you give by standing order, is that it's easy to think, well, 10% is now done. I've now honored God. Tick in the box. I can just spend the rest on what I want. Does that sound like it reflects the, the generous God? Abundant generosity? Does it sound like someone who, who strives to excel at giving? Paul is echoing Malachi 3, verse 10. Test me. I dare you, says God. See if I won't throw open the floodgates and pour out so much blessing you won't have room for it. In other words, you can't outgive God. In a minute, we're going to sing that old hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. You know it? Well, why don't we have a little practice now? So just sing a verse with me, won't you? Let's sing it. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. In the chorus, I surrender 10%. I surrender 10%. Sorry, sorry. What version are you singing? Are you kidding? Oh, oh my goodness. It's amazing. Wow. You're a people of faith. You mean it? Choosing to live generously, choosing to give freely as an attitude. We're not talking about an amount, really. We're just talking about an attitude of generosity. It keeps our greed in check. It makes us more thankful for what we do have. In other words, it helps you to want what you have rather than always having what you want. Is that good? To want what you have, rather than always having what you want. In other words, it does more for us than it does for God. Because shock horror, God doesn't need your money. Sorry. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God asks us to give for one reason, one reason only. To make us more like Jesus. So here's the rub. Here's the take-home message. You ready? This is good. 
The only words that Jesus said that are quoted in the Bible outside of the Gospels are found in the book of Acts. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and it is the only words that Jesus said on earth quoted outside the Gospels. Worth listening to? Acts 20.35. Anyone know what it is? It's this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's the only words of Jesus quoted, that Jesus said on earth quoted outside the Gospels. What if that sums up the whole Gospel? In other words, we're never more like Jesus than when we give. I summarized the whole of Malachi in a sentence. You could summarize Jesus' life in two words. He gave. He gave his life so that we might live. So we come full circle, back to where we started. Those four words, P.S., I love you. Verse one, God will return to his temple. They had a temple, shiny and new. Problem was, God wasn't in it, and they didn't even realize Now he wants to return to his temple. And we're his temple, says 1 Corinthians 6. And he wants to return to take his rightful place in our lives. Verse 7, return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. What a promise. If we've been following at a distance lately, return to me today, and I will return to you. What a promise for our nation. What a promise for the church. Time has gone, we're going to sing again and then come around a communion table. I want to close with a little poem that I often use at funerals and I sometimes wish I could have read to the person before they died. It's the great irony of funerals, isn't it? The one person it's all about is the one person who can never be there and they only miss it by just a few days. This is not a Christian poem, but maybe it's a, a word in season. It's called The Dash by Linda Ellis, and she writes this. I read about someone who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend, and he referred to the dates on his coffin from the beginning to the end. And he noted that first came the date of his birth. He spoke of that second date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the little dash between those years. But that dash represents all the time he spent alive on earth, now only those who love him know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel. Be less quick to anger and show appreciation more. Love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read, with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of what they'd say about how you spent your dash? May we pray. Invite the group back. I'm just going to pray what I, will, I need to say to God, so I invite you to echo it in your heart if you like. And Lord, I just feel so challenged that the world is meant to look at how I live and work out what sort of God I have. 
And so I just pray, Lord, that you would sanctify my priorities. You baptize my bank balance and my schedule so that it looks like you, so it reflects your generosity. I pray you break my heart for what breaks yours. Lord, open my eyes to see the world as you see it. Keep me from choosing not to see the suffering. Teach me to live generously, freely, lightly, in the areas of money, sex, and power, especially in my attitude to the most vulnerable. Lord, would you show me, Holy Spirit, would you show me if there's anything I would struggle to give up? And as I prayed last time I was here, Lord, may, may what's most important to you become what's most important to me. Amen.